Jesus praying really doesn't draw our attention as does his healings and as does his teachings, but it probably ought to. Um, Luke actually records uh, on 12 different occasions when people take time out to pray to God in this gospel, the gospel of Luke. And the majority of those times, it's Jesus who is doing the praying. Early on in the book, Luke chapter 3, we see Jesus praying at his own baptism. We see him then praying whenever the crowds begin to gather around him. He, we find him kind of moving off into a silent, quiet place to get alone, to pray to his heavenly father. Uh, we see him praying again before he chose the 12 disciples. He went off to a mountain and began to pray before he made that selection. After the feeding of the 5,000, we find him praying. And then again, uh, as he goes to the mountain, he's transfigured. He prays with uh, Peter, James, and John. And then we see him praying again after he sends out the 72. They go out, they come back, they begin to share all that God had done in them and through them and Jesus rejoices by praying. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when we get to chapter 11, it begins, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. We say many things about Jesus during, during his earthly ministry, but one of the things we ought to certainly say is that he was a man of prayer. And, and so what we find is that the disciples, because they spent so much time with him, really think about it, about three entire years they spent with him, morning, noon, and night. And in that time, they would observe that Jesus would take a good amount of time in earnest prayer to the Father. And because they wanted to be like him, they knew that they needed to learn to pray like him as well. And so they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples. It was commonplace in that day for, for leaders and teachers of the law to be able to teach those that were under them on specifically how to pray. And it's what they desired to do. Well, who better to learn how to pray to God than the Son of God himself? And so they asked, would you teach us? And of course, Jesus is going to do that very thing. We, we sit back sometimes and I think that this is a weird subject to actually teach people how to pray. We don't often do a great deal of it, but we do do it in, in our one-on-one in, in uh, -on -one discipleship here, teaching people the acts of prayer, specifically when they become a new believer. But we ought to teach on it, I think, more often. So I think this morning is a good thing for us to address this very thing, because here's why. Sometimes we don't pray enough, amen? And sometimes we pray a lot, but we don't pray correctly, we don't pray in the right way. And that's what's weird for people. They sit there and say, well, how is there a right way or wrong way to pray? You just open up your heart and you just spill out whatever it is that's on your heart to God, forgetting that the Old Testament tells us that our hearts are exceedingly wicked all the time. So maybe what's coming out is not God-honoring, is not God-pleasing. In fact, God is, in Jesus, as much as he taught us how to pray, he also taught us how not to pray. On several occasions, he said, don't pray like the Pharisees. He said, when you pray, don't find yourself uh, praying with vain repetition. When you pray, don't doubt that what you're praying to God is going to be answered or, you, or expect nothing from God at all. So it is possible, beloved, that you and I can spend a great deal of time praying and it just not be very good, right, and God-honoring prayers at all. And so I think that God corrects that for us, or Christ corrects us that for us here in this passage. Now, let me set the context for you. 
Why in the world would he all of a sudden give us this teaching on prayer? I think it connects to the previous passage. Last week, we talked about the fact that we, like Martha, could become so busy, wanted to do so many things for God, start off with all, right, all, all the right intentions, and then just kind of lose our way. And he told Martha, he said, Martha, there's one thing that is essential in all that you do, and that is your time that you spend with me. And what he meant by that was that Mary had chosen the better thing, the time of worship at the feet of Jesus Christ, sitting and listening to his word like we're doing this morning. But there's something else to spending time with Jesus. It's not just hearing him speak. It's us speaking back to him in prayer. That's where I think the context really, really helps us, is understanding one thing is important, Jesus speaking to us and us speaking back in communication and a relationship with him. So it would make sense that he would give us these instructions. Now, before we jump into the instructions, let me say something. Uh, when you read this, this is called the Lord's Prayer, but it's probably not fam as familiar as the Lord's Prayer that you and I have probably memorized. It's a little bit different. That Lord's Prayer actually comes in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And because they're similar, but yet there are a lot of differences, uh, critics often say, well, one of the two got it wrong. They're too different to be from the same exact sitting. Therefore, one of these two guys, and they literally write droves of pages of, of why one of them was an error. But we don't have to think that either one of them was an error. In fact, especially when we understand that these were two different prayers given to two different groups of people at two different times. The first prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer that many of us have memorized, was actually given early in Jesus' ministry at the Sermon of the Mount. He gave it there to train the, the populace, the large here, this comes later in Jesus' ministry. Remember, in Jerusalem, when he gets there, he will die for the sins of the world. And so now his disciples ask him along the way after seeing him pray, teach us how to pray. So this is to them. So it's two different prayers at two different times. We would expect that there would be a difference in the two. And then to also understand that, that it's different because he's not trying to get them to memorize a prayer word for word, but rather give them a pattern. When I preach other places, which is a rarity, by the way, when I'm asked to go and preach somewhere else, I don't do it very often. So thank you for allowing me to come here each week to preach. And so when I go to another place, if I preach the same sermon that I preached here, it's the same principles, but it's not the exact words. So when Jesus gives us and teaches us how to pray, he's not expecting us all to memorize one prayer and pray the same prayer day in and day night over, day in and day out, over and over and over again. Now, there's nothing wrong with memorizing the Lord's Prayer. It could be helpful. It could be encouraging to one another as believers. As believers who have never met come together, they can say the Lord's Prayer together. Nothing ever wrong with memorizing Scripture and even quoting it as long as it is, it's meant what it is that we are praying. But Jesus' intention from the beginning was not to give us a prayer to memorize, but rather to give us a process or a model of prayer so every time we pray, we know how to pray. And so what we find is we find really this, these instructions broken up into two simple sections. There is vertical prayer that we are to pray vertically, and then we are also to pray horizontally. So the prayer vertically has to do everything in drawing all our attention to God. And we see three aspects of this in the text. First, we see recognition. Notice in verse 2, the Bible says, When you pray, say, Father, 
Jesus was instructing his disciples. He said, listen, when you pray, you need to make sure that you recognize who it is that you are praying to. You are recognizing and praying to your heavenly father. Now, that doesn't seem anything strange to us. That's common. That's usually how we begin our prayers. Heavenly father, we thank you for today and we continue to pray on. But it was unique during the time of Christ. In fact, people didn't bother when they were addressing him in prayer. In fact, in all the Old Testament, there's only one prayer that we find that somebody did that, and that was Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 16. When Isaiah prayed, for you are our father, he says, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. But it's the only one. That's an exception to the rule. So when Jesus comes on the scene, and every time they hear him pray, he's praying, our father, or my father, or father, however he, he, he uses it, and however he speaks it, this is, this is brand new to them. They've never heard it before. In fact, every time that we see Jesus praying, he addresses God as his father, except for one important exception, and that was when he was on the cross. When he was on the cross, instead of saying, my father, at that point, at this point, when, when the sins of the world were being poured out on top of him and the wrath of God was pouring down on him to consume and to pay for those sins, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But the reason he prayed that way and, and called out to him as God and not his father is because he wasn't calling as a son to a father, but rather as a condemned sinner to a righteous judge. So that's the difference. But every other way he prays, he prays my father, his followers to do the same. And not only his original disciples, but every believer, everyone who would come and receive him by faith, receive him and believe in and place their faith in his completed work, his death, burial, and resurrection, they become children of God. John 1, 12. But he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When we address God in prayer as father, it recalibrates our minds and our hearts. Most of the time that I go in prayer, here's, here's what it is. I'm tired, I'm worn out, I'm frustrated, and I need something from God. So I initially rush in and go, hey, God, Father, whatever it is, I need you, I need your help, Blah. and here's all the things I need your help with. Please get busy doing something at this moment. Instead, he says, instead of that, we recognize that he is a Father who cares for us, who loves us, who wants to spend time with us, who cares deeply for us and wants to spend this time in communion one with another. Now, there's a challenge today to be using and identifying uh, God as, as Father, right? There's, there's even some challenge within so-called professing believers that say, I don't think we really need to refer to God as Father because the truth is we could call him as our mother because a spirit is neither male nor female. Now, they're right in that. God is a spirit. He's not male, nor is he female. And so they say, hey, it would be just as appropriate to call him a her, you know, the whole pronoun thing. We're in the pronoun time. So we could either call him a her. It doesn't, we don't have to call him a him. We can call him a, a woman. We can call him whatever. It doesn't matter. He's God. We can address him the way that we want. But that's not how the Bible, how God has revealed himself. That is rebellion against God. That's like saying, hey, uh, please call me Pastor Mike. And you go, okay, Jimbo. Nice to meet you, Jimbo. Like Pastor Mike, no, hey, Jimbo, you, you see what I'm, that would be disrespectful. In the same way with God, if the creator of the world says, here's how I relate to you, here's how I want you to understand my relationship to you as, as a father, then to be able to go somewhere different and basically 
determine who we want God to be, that's a sin. That's making an image of God and, or making God of a, a false image. This is the way we want to define God when God himself has already defined himself. The other problem, I think, with this idea of, of viewing God as a father today is some of us did not have great fathers. Some didn't have fathers at all. Some wish they didn't have a father because sorry that all they have is a whole life full of scars and difficulties because he didn't love, he didn't care, he didn't nurture, he didn't do, he, he definitely wasn't like God in any capacity. So to think of God as father, then we begin to think, oh no, wait a minute, how do I relate to him? This is why, fathers, that as much as you want to be able to put on and share in those same qualities as God, and I think we can reflect the glory of God through his help. Remember, we fall way short of God's ultimate standard. That's when we talk about God and what kind of father he is. We don't look to human examples. We look to the word of God because it's in the scripture that tells us what kind of father he is, that he's an all-knowing, all-loving, all-faithful, all-protective, all-providing father who never, ever fails us. So when we're addressing him, when we go in prayer, remember who it is that we are praying to. There's a recognition that is involved. And then we see the second step is this idea of glorification. Not only do we need to know who we're talking to, but we need to know what he is like. The Bible says here, he says, he says we pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Now we don't use that word hallowed very often, do we? Not in common, you know, uh, language. We don't sit there and say, please, uh, hand me that howled pizza. I, I don't know how you would even use it, to be honest with you. It's just not a term that, that we use, but it literally means to set apart as holy. It carries with it this idea of glorifying, of exalting, of praising above everyone and everything. So the idea here is what uh, John MacArthur suggests that this is very important. Because what it does is it keeps us from becoming too comfortable with our Father God that we find ourselves being irreverent of Him. So He is our Father, but we don't sit around calling Him our homeboy. We don't sit, turn around and call Him, oh, He's Papa. He's my Papa. He's my Pops. No, you don't do that. The reason is because, yes, he's a father, but yet there's a holiness about him, and we want to identify his holiness, his, his glory. And so John MacArthur writes this. He says, understand that God is sacred, provides the, necessity balance, the, the necessary balance between viewing him as father. It guards us against abusing intimacy, uh, intimacy believers have with him. And so the idea, when he says then to how will it be your name, what we're really saying is, God, may your name be glorified. Above every other name, let your name be glorified. May it be exalted. May it be praised above all others. But why a name? You're probably familiar with the famous quote by William Shakespeare, who wrote in his play of Romeo and Juliet. He says, what is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name should smell just as sweet. He was saying, it really doesn't matter what you call something. He goes, something is what it is, whether you call it one thing or another, Jesus disagrees. He says, what we call the Father is of great significance. Here's why. Because what we call the name is not simply a title. It is a picture of who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. We just touched on that just a moment ago. And so this, this is important. So when we say, how will it be your name? When we're praying, we come to the Father, we recognize him for who he is, and then we pray, how will it be your name? We're saying, God... Above all else, before I make any request, my greatest desire in my heart is for you to be exalted and glorified. 
My greatest desire, Lord, whether you change my circumstances, I know is you may not change my circumstances because changing my circumstances wouldn't bring you glory. Not changing it would bring you glory. And God, if I have a choice of you changing my circumstances and you being glorified, I chose from the beginning for you to be glorified. And when we say glorified, what we mean is we're allowing the world to see just how great and amazing and wonderful God is. And we're doing that through the way that we live. And so we're, we're calling him and we're, we, we want to be able to glorify him. It's, it's similar to what Paul says when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, when he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So here's something. Now, what I want you to note as we go through this is how many of these elements are missing from our prayers. One thing we probably don't do a lot is begin with that saying, God, just to let you know, above everything else, you glorify yourself and I want to glorify you. I want to glorify you. I want people to look at my life and see what you're like. I want people to love you more because of what you've done inside of my life. And not only for me, I want this for my family. I want it for our country. Lord, as long as you're glorified, I'm completely content. Do you see how that puts the priority, God and his glory above all else before we go anywhere else? And that's key. And this is what he's teaching us to do. Now, after that glory, we pray for his glory. We also then pray for our Mission. Now notice this. He says, Father. Uh, then he goes on and he says, uh, he says to him, um, he, goes, he goes, hallowed be thy name. Uh, then your kingdom come. The extended version of Matthew is your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. From the moment that Jesus came on the scene, he kept preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's arrived. Do you remember that? John the Baptist kept saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming. Well, Jesus Christ comes. Guess what? The kingdom of God has arrived. Now, the kingdom of God is not a location. It's not a place. You can't put it in your GPS, kingdom of God, and it's going to take you there. That's not how it works. The kingdom of God, rather, is the rule and reign of God. And where is that kingdom found? It's found in the hearts of his people. It's found in the heart of his people who are kneeled in submission to the one and true God. That's where the kingdom of God has begun. That's where it is today. But even though he rules over all and he's in control over, over all, we know that not all the world acknowledges his authority. Would you agree? Instead, what we find is that one day as we pray, when we pray for submission for the whole world, your kingdom come, what we're, what we're praying for is that that ultimate time that will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when we're praying to him, we pray, Lord, help me to submit to you. How often do we pray this? God, not my will, but your will be done. Whatever you say is what I want to be. God, you've already done great amounts in my life. How many could say that, that God has done a great deal in their life? You've changed tremendously since you come to faith in Christ. Nobody at all. Fantastic. This is great. But yes, you have. But yet you still have this big list in where he's changed all of this. But you still have this equally big list that you know that you have not yet submitted yourself to Christ. And your prayer is, God, I want it all to be you. I want you to be Lord over my finances. I want you to be Lord over my life, over my relationships, Lord, over my health, over my speech, over what I want. Lord, reign over me. And not only for me, but for my family. Can you imagine fathers and moms praying this? God, let us glorify you by submitting to your ways so that we do all for your glory in our family. Where are we not submitting? Where are we not submitting? What about in our church? 
Can you imagine if all of us prayed this for each other? God, help our whole church be in submission to you, to bring glory to you for your honor and your praise. God, I know that John is struggling with this or Bob is struggling with this, but God, I pray for them. I pray for, for my own sin. God, help me to submit to you and help my brothers and sisters in Christ do it as well. When we pray, by the way, for our nation, this is what we're praying for. We're not praying for a particular, for, for one party to join the other political party. What we are praying for is, God, that you would be glorified by the submission of our nation, that we will kneel to you and to you alone. Do you get that? That's what we are ultimately praying. So look, when you get to the end of all of this, and I did this this week. I said, okay, here's a model. I'm going to go and try to follow this model better. I know I could pray better. Lord, show me how to pray. I get to the end of this model, and I don't even know if I want to pray anything else. And it's not because I'm tired. It's that my mind is now where it needs to be. My heart is now where it needs to be. When I'm sitting there saying, God, you're a good father. I, can, I, I should be able to run to you. I could come to you. Why do I even wait when you're a loving father who wants to hear what I have to say and wants to be able to meet my needs? God, I identify you as that. I also want your glory over everything else. And oh, by the way, I want to submit to you in everything. At the end of it, I feel like just kind of praying this. And whatever you want to do with everything else, just do it. Doesn't it kind of feel that way? And, and I would stop right there, but Jesus doesn't because he does want us to pray not only vertically, but also horizontally. So let's, so let's see what he wants us to pray about. Once our heart is right, once it's recalibrated to God and not to ourself and our own selfishness, but God and God's glory, then we're ready. Warren Wiersbe writes, he says, once we are secure in our relationship with God and his will, then we can bring our requests to him. We can now make supplications to God to meet our needs. So here, how do we pray horizontally? Horizontally, I just mean all the stuff that's going on here and now. How do we pray? Three points again. Look at this. Provision. Provision. Look at verse three. Give us each day, give, give us each day our daily bread. He doesn't, ask, he doesn't say, hey, look, ask for steak, pate, or creme brulee. He says, ask for bread. Just plain old bread. Now, one of my daughters, she would love that. She could eat bread and that was it. But, but during the day, during the time for the Jewish people, this was the most basic common denominator of a meal or food that would sustain life. He says, you know what you do is you just pray for what is absolutely essential for living. Now, does this mean that we're ever supposed to, that we can't pray for anything else? We can't pray for more than that? No, I don't think so. But I think it helps us in several ways. But what God has done is God has a way of meeting our daily needs. It reminds me of the story uh, of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Do you remember this in the old time? I'm supposed to stop saying that. I, I keep saying, do you remember this? And people are like, no, I don't remember the story. So let me tell you the story. It's in 1 Kings. Uh, there was a great famine in Israel, and there was literally almost nothing to eat. And, and so Elijah finds this, this widow woman, and, and, he, and he approaches her, and he says, Hey, give me some water. And she gives him some water. And she says, he says, now give me some bread. And she says, I have no bread. All I have is a little bit of flour in a jar, have a little bit of oil in another jar. I'm going to go ahead and make one last loaf of bread. And then my son and I are going to eat. And then we're going to die. And he says, well, trust God. And he says, go ahead and give me some bread first. And then I'm going to give some bread to you. And once I give some bread to you, he says, after that, you're not going to, your flour will not run dry. Your oil will not run dry. You'll have plenty for each time. And she does it. And every day after that, here's what she does. She gets up. There's a little bit of flour. There's a little bit of oil. She makes it. She has just enough food for the day. The barrels in the jar is empty. 
She goes to bed that day. She wakes up the next day. She finds out just enough flour, just enough oil for that day. Not enough for the next day, but just for that day. How does that help us? I think it helps us in one way. First of all, it really ultimately helps us to understand of how grateful we need to be upon God. Oftentimes, really where we become disappointed is we become disappointed in the fact that that we feel as though God's not meeting our needs the way that we want. But oftentimes what we're doing is we're asking him for things that he's never really promised us from the beginning. Instead, God said, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Asking him for things that he never promised us always leads to disappointment. Always leads to disappointment. Half the time that I see somebody or talk with somebody, it's always because they're like, I don't know why God wouldn't give this. I prayed this, I asked for this. And I said, do you believe that God promised that he would give you this? And if they say, yeah, usually I show them in the word of God that God never promised them what they say he's promised them. What God had promised them to do is give them what is absolutely essential. And when God gives us those essentials each and every day, we find ourselves not being frustrated with God, but thankful for God, viewing him as a great provider. The second thing it helps us with is it helps protect us against anxiousness. Notice he says, not only ask for bread, but ask each day for our daily bread. Did you notice that? For our daily bread. Again, that reminds us of the story of our path. And, and the idea is, is, have you ever noticed that we're usually not anxious for what we need today? It's usually always anxious for some time in the future. That's why Jesus, by the way, knowing what he was talking about, said, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. We can literally sit there, be worrying about today when God has supplied everything we need today. I could sit there with a ham sandwich going, eating it, going, man, I just don't know if I'm gonna have food tomorrow. Just don't know if I'm going to have enough tomorrow. I could be driving around in my car with gas and say, man, I don't know if I'm going to have enough money tomorrow for gas. Or I could be living in my home and go, man, I don't know if I'm going to have enough money next month for the rent payment or for the mortgage payment. But yet in the midst of all that, God sits there and says, listen, beloved, I told you that I would give you what is necessary each and every way. Do not worry about tomorrow. We'll take care of that tomorrow. Then finally, what we see here is we see the idea that it also protects us, asking for daily bread protects us from being self-dependent. You know, many of us don't even think about God as our provider. We go to work, we do our thing, we went to school, we have a great job. We have an intellect or abilities that people have sought after. We've gone and we've taken a job. We make, all, we make this money and all this money. Then we go ahead and we are the ones that pay for the food. We even tell our kids, remember who provided this for you. And we're saying we're the ones that ultimately provided it for you. You need to be grateful for us. But the truth is we lose sight of the fact that God is the one who gave it to us. God is the one who gave us the abilities. He's the one who gave us the opportunities. He's the one that gave that paycheck, not ourselves. So by praying daily, what he's saying is be daily dependent upon God. And that is exemplified and demonstrated in our prayers. Well, we find one last thing. And that, or to, to another thing, not only do we see this idea of, of his provision, but we also see perfection. Look at verse four. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So not only are we supposed to be asking for our daily bread, but we're supposed to be asking for daily forgiveness. Now, as a child, this really confused me. My parents would tell me, hey, Mike, when you got saved, your sins were forgiven, past, present, and future. Have you ever heard that? 
That is why, by the way, if you die committing a sin and have not confessed it, that's why you go immediately to heaven. Why? Because all sin is covered by the blood. All sin has been paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But even though all sin has been forgiven, past, present, and future, we still find ourselves, and the scriptures keep, still keep telling us, that we need to confess our sins daily. What's the deal? Are they forgiven or are they not forgiven? What are we supposed to make of it? Well, we understand this through the distinction between a relationship and fellowship. We are children of God. When we become children of God, every sin that we have is forgiven, but our fellowship can become strained. Nothing can change the state of a relationship. A lot can change the state of our fellowship with God. It's like your child. You have a child and what do you tell them? You go around and say, mommy loves you. You'll always be mommy's baby. You'll always be daddy's girl. You'll always be, what are we trying to do? We're trying to give them a sense of security and a sense of love. Nothing will ever change that. No matter what you do, I'll always be your child. But you and I both know they can do stuff that breaks the fellowship, right? They hit you, you they yell at you, they steal something, they eat your Twinkie. I will not mention who did that, dad's Twinkie, you know, and, the, and you begin to become a little bit frustrated and angry. So what do we need to do at that point? They're still our child, but the fellowship, things are not right with us. Why? Because of their sin. So what do we do at that time? We basically call them and implore them to come and to confess their sin. We, we, they come to us finally and they go, dad, I'm so sorry. And what do we do at that point? We say, what are you sorry for? What are you sorry for? And why don't they want, why do we ask them to do that? Because we know it's hard to really come clean and to understand how horrible it is and the horrible act of sin that we've actually committed against our father. Same exact thing as with our confessing of sin. We need to come and we need to confess that sin daily to him. We need to identify what we did, not only to recognize how serious it is, but to keep us from doing the same thing in the future. I've given this example several times, but there's a missionary by the name of Bertha Smith and she was incredibly helpful uh, to me in understanding what it means to really confess sin. When, to be around Bertha Smith, people would say, in, in, including Billy Graham and several others, would say to be around Bertha Smith was like being in the very presence of God. And they would ask her, they said, why is it that we just feel like we're in God's presence when we're with you? She says, I have no idea. She goes, all I know is the one thing I make sure I do every day is have every sin confessed up to date. And then she says this in her book. She says, she says, you know how far or how close you are to God with how long it takes you to repent of sin. If it takes you a week or a month or a year to confess from sin, you know you, your fellowship is not good with him. You are not walking with him. But if you confess almost instantaneously the slightest bit of sin in your life, you know that you're walking in close fellowship with him. So what God wants us to do, literally, think about this. How often do we even pray this? Oftentimes our prayers are this. Now, this doesn't count getting up and going, God, if there be any way that I failed you today, I pray that you would forgive me. Oh, there be a way. There be many ways that you have failed him by sinning against him, right? Many ways. It's not about that. It's about you and I identifying that sin and coming to him and being coming clean and seeking God to be able to forgive us. I think one of the best pictures of this is saying all of our sins are ultimately forgiven, but yet we need to be cleansed of our daily sin. I think a picture of that is found in John chapter 13 and verse 9. In John chapter 13, Jesus is about to give his life uh, for sinners. He's about to go to the cross. And what does he do before he goes? He washes the feet of the disciples. Do you remember this? Washes the feet of the disciples. And, and Peter, being Peter, says, you will never wash my feet. 
And Jesus says, then you can have nothing to do with me. He goes, okay, wash me all over. <laughs> wash my head and wash my feet and wash my hands. Wash everything. And Jesus responds to him and says, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. It's the idea of the believer. The believer is fully washed, fully cleansed by God. But in this life, day to day, we get our feet dirty and we need him to come and to cleanse us. Finally, we see in the very last, we see an idea of protection. A very short verse. He says, and lead us not into temptation. Now, this isn't suggesting in any way, shape, or form that, that God is the one who leads us to be tempted by sin. If we know our Bibles, the book of James says that Jesus cannot, or God cannot be tempted by, by sin, to sin, because there is no sin in him. Therefore, he can't tempt anyone else to sin. If we sin, it's because of the own sin inside of our heart that rests there. And so the Bible teaches us that sometimes temptation can be good. James 1 tells us in verses 2 and 3 that sometimes if we endure that temptation, that we become more like Christ through the process. Other times the Bible teaches us that, that really if, if we're in the midst of that, that God always provides in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, God always provides for us a way of escape when we're being tempted, so we praise God. So all of that is true, but really at the end of the day, wouldn't it be better if we just weren't in a place of temptation at all? I think that's the heart of a true believer. Heart of a true believer is God, God, I don't wanna fail you, but God, just take me out of any scenario that I can, that I will no longer be tempted so that there's no possibility of me sinning against you. Again, beloved, this is, this is a completely different way to pray. I don't know how you pray, but this is sometimes our prayers. God, I'm so angry. I cannot stand it anymore. My child has done this. My husband has done this. I don't understand why you're still letting them breathe. This doesn't make any sense. Change this. What about my boss at the work place? This is terrible. Look, look how people are attacking me. I feel so bad. People have done such wrong things to me. How long, oh Lord? How long will you allow this to go on? Those are more common prayers than what this is. This is completely and radically different. Imagine if you and I actually took the time and disciplined ourselves to pray this way. Part of the reason that I was even not wanting to pray it, but it's the next text in scripture, so I'm kind of stuck doing it. But I didn't really want to do it because I'm like, you know, we're going to do this. I'm going to teach this. We're going to go through every, every part. We're going to leave and pray the same way we did before Christ instructed us how to pray. And that would be a pity. Because I think if we did go ahead and submit ourselves to Christ in praying this way, uh, recognizing him as father, that we'd probably run to him rather than wait to run to him and take everything to God in prayer. I think at the same time, praying that God would be above all else would be glorified and that we would submit to him in every area. I think we would see a radical shift and a radical change in the way that we live our lives and even in our witnesses. And what difference would it, God's kingdom would come right now, right here in our home community and, and ultimately in our country. What is it that we're not seeing happen because we refuse to pray? And how grateful, how much more grateful and less anxious would we be if we actually prayed rightly for our daily needs, seeing God being faithful to do it, meeting our needs and not our greeds. We wouldn't be sour towards him. We'd be grateful towards him. We would rejoice in what he does, not, not frustrated with what he doesn't. And how much sweeter would it be if we walk, if we were walk with him and our walk was spent with, with continual confession of sin and taking the time to forgive anyone else. That was a big thing in that point, by the way. I just skipped over it, but it's not only us seeking forgiveness of God, it's seeking the forgiveness and forgiving other people who have sinned against us. But if you want to talk about walking right with God and being in fellowship with God, 
There's almost nothing that I can think of that really hinders that than a believer refusing to forgive those that have sinned against them. If God can forgive us with all the sin that we've committed, then what possibly could another person do to sin against us that we would not be able to forgive with the strength of God? Nothing. And so, and imagine how different things would be. This is what we do. Instead of forgiving, we're like, I'm not gonna forgive till that person comes to me. I'm gonna hold it over their head. I'm gonna treat them different. Our hearts begin to be, the relationship begins to become destroyed. Can you imagine instead actually doing what the text of scripture says? At the end of every day, confessing every one of our sin and in our heart, think of those who have sinned against us, but sit back and go, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. How different, how fresh every day and every relationship would ultimately be. Here's the bottom line. We don't see a lot of this happening because prayer changes things, which means we're probably not praying rightly. And the greatest thing that prayer changes is us. And this prayer is for you and I to be changed into the perfection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time that we've had to be able to spend with you, to reflect on you, to love you. And God, right now, we, we have a decision. We can either just walk away from the sermon and just keep praying the way that we do in errant ways or not praying as we should, or we could submit to you and say, wait a minute, of all the people who just taught us how to pray, Jesus teaches us how to do it. I want to be like him. I want to follow him. Therefore, I'm going to seek to pray like him. God, as always, there were some who were here that don't know you. They don't know you. They don't have a relationship with you. I don't know why they're holding off. I don't know what it is. I don't know if they were having a hard time thinking that, God, you would forgive them, or they think that, well, maybe there's another way. Well, here's the answer to both of those. Yes, God will forgive them no matter what they've done, and no, there is no other way. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through you. God, grant forgiveness and belief today. In your precious name, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together. We're gonna have an invitation. This is if you are a new member, if you want to, or want to be a new member, you come down. If you have your card, you've been through everything, please come at this time. Uh, for some of you, you need to come for prayer. For some, you may need to come for faith. Just saying, hey, I need to know more about the gospel. Will you share it with me and will you teach it with me? So let's, let's go ahead and, and respond right now.